0: The M-Store where they're all Grizz all the time.
2: Change is constant, and nowhere is this more true than with your company's network and network security. With an SD-WAN solution from Blackfoot Communications, you get the best of both worlds. A scalable network to quickly connect remote offices and the protection from downtime that ensures your network is always on. For more information, visit blackfootbusiness.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more.
1: Welcome back to Tell Nuanas, one two ninety SPN radio, SWX Montana television.
3: from the Kurtz Polaris Studio, here is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanez. And we're
1: very happy to be with you on a Thursday. As we are uh, just an hour away from kickoff. Bengals-Browns. Actually, I guess it's a little more than an hour. What time do they do that thing? 620? You're the one that knows. I know. Should be paying more attention. So excited. Just want to get it here. You uh, know, sit on the couch with the kiddos and watch some NFL football. I'm, I'm into this. Uh... If you uh, would like to get in touch with us, 361-3688 is the phone number, 361-3688. All guests join us via the Rankish Brothers RV phone line. You can also listen live, no matter where you are, on the World Wide Web. You go to our website, 1029ESPN.com. You uh, stream the show there. Click on the Listen Live tab, jump in the stream. The stream is available thanks to Opportunity Bank of Montana. Opportunity Bank, your local bank your opportunity. Uh, you can also check out the Two-Tail Nuanas podcast available wherever you get your podcast. Rate, review, subscribe. Two-Tail Nuanas podcast is available thanks to our friends at Blackfoot Communications. Coming up in about a half an hour from now, we are going to hear uh, from uh, 1995 Junior university of montana grizzly offensive guard mike agey he was uh on that 1995 national championship team and his episode episode four of the grizz greats podcast is out so you can go listen to that go to the website grizzgreats.com you can also get it on spotify and uh we will uh hear from him coming up in about eh, about 20 minutes from now so we'll get to that but coulter you wanted to talk about the Hall of Fame a little bit and the first-year eligibles of the Hall of Fame. Uh, the quarterback that is eligible is Peyton Manning. Is he a Hall of Famer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a half second where you took me serious, and you were just staring at me blankly, and then then it settled in on you a little bit. Uh, Peyton Manning uh, will be in the Hall of Fame uh, this time next year, and the wide receivers that are uh, eligible, Calvin Johnson, Wes Welker, Roddy White, Heath Miller, the lone tight end, Steven Jackson, the lone running back, and then uh, on the offensive line, DeBricashaw Ferguson and Logan Mankins. Defensive backs, Charles Tillman and Charles Woodson. Defensive lineman, how about Jared Allen? Idaho State, what's up? Justin Tuck, Kevin Williams, and the uh, linebacker, Jared Mayo. Jared Mayo, Mayo, excuse me. Uh, So uh, there's the group. We also have a list of of guys here who've been eligible and are not yet in, uh, and we can talk about them a little bit. But off of this list, look, obviously Peyton Manning uh, is in. To me, there's no question Calvin Johnson is in, even though he did retire, you know, in in the back end, but still in his prime. Uh, there are Charles Woodson, obviously, is a, is is a no doubter. Logan Mankins, I think, is certainly in on this list ultimately. But ultimately, ultimately, not yeah. Not, I'm not saying. I mean, Peyton Manning is is the no question first ballot guy. Anybody else first ballot? Charles all
0: about first ballot Hall Chuck. Okay, I'm with that. I'm
1: with that. He
0: won Defensive Player of the Year at two different positions. I think he's the only guy to ever do that. Uh, He also has more than 50 picks. He's one of the great kick returners in league history, and he was uh, an alpha dog for multiple different franchises. I think Charles Woodson is won a Super Bowl
1: there. Uh, Okay, so so what else? What else stands out to you about this, Colter? Well, I think that one thing that is just so
0: the NFL has had so many different eras, which because of the way football was played and is now played the statistics in measuring who is hall of fame caliber it is, ain't baseball it's almost irrelevant yeah absolutely there'll be dudes who i mean for, for example Reggie Wayne is still on the he's not a first he's not a uh, first uh year eligible guy but he's on the ballot currently and like Reggie Wayne was a very good player Reggie Wayne was The best receiver on his own team for maybe two of the seasons he played in the NFL. Reggie Wayne is tenth in NFL history in catches Mm -hmm. and ninth in yards. He's not one of the top ten receivers in NFL history. Period. Yeah, no right. He might get in the Hall of Fame, but it's going to take a lot. I think the other thing worth remembering
1: there's in the hall of fame right now there's
0: i think less than 300 players
1: total no it's i think it's like 349 is what we're at right now okay regardless oh you said you said players though players so i mean i think there's 349 people in the hall of fame in total but obviously a number of those are coaches too so i i I don't know where the cut the actual player cutoff is right I'm trying to count them up real quick, but I mean, just, just for your We're trying to count to 300 while we're sitting here? It's pretty good. Well, I'm impressed with yeah. you. I, I got it. Don't worry about it. doesn't
0: matter. The point of the story is there's only 26 quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. There's only 29 receivers. There's only nine tight ends. There's only 47 offensive linemen. And you're talking about five different positions. Divide by positions. five. Yeah, right. There's only 38 defensive linemen, 31 linebackers, 34 DBs. So, a lot of times, I think we assume guys maybe are Hall of Famers,
1: and they're not. Yeah, I mean, even though they were really good. I look at this. I mean, Wes Welker, Roddy White, they're not Hall of Famers to me. Heath Miller, Steven Jackson, they're not Hall of Famers. Yeah. Berkshire Ferguson, not a Hall of Famer. Now, Steven Jackson, I I wouldn't... I'm not saying he is, but I I would spend some time reviewing with Steven Jackson. I thought Steven Jackson, for the duration that he did it, and... (laughs) the beast that he is uh is 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 impressive but i i in general i mean your point is well made charles tillman Mm. justin tuck no like i don't think justin tuck's not a hall of famer man there's like in baseball there's certain players that are sort of
0: litmus tests i think in football there's a few guys at the skill positions that are sort of litmus tests to me the litmus test for running back is curtis martin Curtis Martin's a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Curtis Martin, I believe, finished his career third or fourth in NFL history yeah. in rushing yards. But is Steven Jackson better than Curtis Martin? Well, no. No. Yeah. And that's you have to be as good or better than Curtis Martin to make it into the Hall of Fame, I,
1: I believe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, would you uh, let's say this. If I look at the list of other running backs that are not first year eligible guys, Sean Alexander, Mike Allstott, Tiki Barber, uh, Larry Centers, Corey Dillon, Warwick Dunn. Steven Jackson's better than all of those guys. No, what? Yes. No,
0: because he has no, nowhere close to the historical his, uh, s- statistical accomplishments.
1: Sean Alexander set the NFL record for touchdowns in a season. Sean Alexander is going to be my exact point. He's the litmus test for out. So Sean Alexander is not a Hall of Famer. Sean Alexander had several very, very productive seasons behind an not, not, not an All-Pro, my friend, a Hall of Fame offensive line. Walter Jones, Steve Hutchinson, anchoring that thing. And he took as many slides as he did hits. Now, I know that he led the NFL in touchdowns in, I think, 06. He scored 23 or 24 touchdowns in that season. He also rushed for, like, 1,689 yards. And was he, he was not the leading rusher in the league by one yard that season. He's got 9,000 career rushing yards. But I'm just telling you, he ain't a Hall of Famer. Neither like, Steven Jackson. Huh? Neither Steven Jackson. And, I, and I'm not sitting here saying that for sure Steven Jackson is, but Steven Jackson's a better running back than Sean Alexander.
0: I don't think a single running back on this list Steven Jackson or any of the other guys you just named, including Priest Holmes, Jamal Lewis, Eddie George, Lorenzo Neal—maybe as a fullback, but probably not. Herschel Walker, though, no,
1: not as a not as a pro man because of the, because of the the lack of what ended up happening in total. I mean, he went to the USFL and then I mean, it is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Let's remember, it ain't the NFL Hall of Fame.
0: It is. I just think it's going to be hard for him to get in. To be a Hall of Famer, it's not just about numbers and consistency. It's about being transcendent. Calvin Johnson's a Hall of Famer, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guys that are on the ballot, the rest of the guys that are on the ballot, you mentioned the first-year guys, Wes Wilker, Roddy White, but the other receivers, to me, Donald Driver, no. Henry Ellard, no. Torrey Holt? He would be the new litmus test if he got in. But if Isaac Bruce is in, which he is, he was inducted last year, Torrey Holt is in because Torrey Holt is as good, if not better, than Isaac Bruce. Chad Johnson, he had the flair, but no. Derek Mason, no. Moosin Muhammad, no. Jimmy Smith, no. Rod Smith, no. Reggie Wayne, hard maybe. Heinz Ward, oh man. Heinz Ward is like that is the entry point. I right?
1: think Heinz Ward is is going to get in.
0: Heinz Ward has exactly one thousand catches. He has more catches than Randy Moss. He was the leader of an iconic franchise. He multiple won, Super Bowls, two Super yep. Bowls. So uh, he's right there. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think Heinz Ward is going to be in in the Hall of Fame. I don't think there's a question about that.
0: Peyton Manning, uh, absolutely. Drew Bledsoe, no. Randall Cunningham, no. Jake Delhomme, um, no. Jeff Garcia, no. Dave Craig, no.
1: Donovan McNabb, maybe. Mm. See, out of, on this list, the one guy who I would really consider putting in, other than obviously Peyton, is Randall Cunningham. I mean, I think Randall Cunningham. But with quarterbacks, it is about winning. It is, but it, you you said you got to be transcendent. Randall Cunningham is a transcendent player. He, he, yeah, he and, was, and, that, and
0: that's actually, honestly, why Randall Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, and Steve McNair are all they—they have—they—they um, they have elements other than statistical measures and winning that really also make a huge argument for them. That's right. African American quarterbacks in the league have become the norm. Uh, in fact, many of the best quarterbacks in the league right now are black and. It's easy to forget that when Doug Williams led the Washington Redskins to a Super Bowl back in 1987, that was an enormous watershed moment. Warren Moon was one of the best quarterbacks on planet Earth for the duration of his professional football career and couldn't get into the NFL until he'd been a pro up in the CFL for six or seven years. Mm
1: -hmm. Randall Cunningham, though, he was the the pioneer of the running-type quarterback I mean, was, honestly, if Ryan Cunningham was doing it right now, he would shred because he was doing it within the context of offenses that weren't built to handle what he was. No question, you know. And and that is, you know, that's just what it is. I mean, it, it, there's got to be people who are the first to break a mold, yeah. and he was able to do that, and yeah. and, and and is phenomenal. But Donal Mcnabb, five straight NFC Championship games, two Super Bowl appearances, but didn't win Super Bowl. That hurts him. Steve, yeah.
0: Mc, Steve McNair has a couple feathers in his cap because he's the last great HBCU quarterback that we've seen in the league that was an MVP-type guy from a historical black college in Alcorn State. He also, I think, is the greatest player in Titans history. That goes a long ways. He transitioned them when they made the controversial move from Houston and transformed from the Oilers to the Titans – and he almost won a Super Bowl. Yeah, came close. But I still think that not, none of that, although
1: those are all wonderful and great accomplishments, I still think none of those are, are Do, good enough. It doesn't or, quite get enough. you there. Yeah, I agree. Stu Tell Nuanas, 1029 ESPN Radio. Uh, Coulter, before we hear from Mike Agee here in about 10 minutes, just wanted to quickly discuss since it is now in the books, round number one, but the U.S. Open at Wingfoot is going on. Now, we've talked about this before. The USGA attempts to roughly when they set up a U.S. Open, they want the winner of the tournament to be around even par, right? I mean, they want it to be that tough where the the cut line is going to be like five over, right, going into the weekend or something like that because of, of the difficulty of the course. Some approachable pin placements today, it's going to be tougher tomorrow and the weekend, particularly when it comes to weather as well. This is just outside of New York; it's about 20 miles outside of New York City. Uh, is supposed to be make this thing ferocious, but conditions were relatively for a U.S. Open scoreable today, and Justin Thomas took advantage. Five under 65 set the all-time record course record for a U.S. Open at Wingfoot. I don't remember how many times it's been there, but this is. It, it, it has been uh, – uh, this is a regular uh, site for a U.S. Open uh, there outside of New York. He shoots five under 65. Patrick Reed, Thomas Peters, Matthew Wolfe all at four under. Three players, including Louis stays and Rory McIlroy are at three under. And then a handful of guys uh, at two under and one under. Here's, here's something for you. 20 players in red figures after the first round of the U.S. Open. I, I don't I don't have the history sitting here in front of me, but – so that means they're going to make it just ridiculous. Uh, that ain't gonna that 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 has got to be. I mean that that's got to be certainly one of the biggest groups under par in the history of the U.S. Open in terms of after the first round, the total number of guys that are there. Tiger Woods double bogeyed eighteen, ended up shooting three over seventy three. Jordan Speeth also shot a seventy three. I don't. When is, it, when is it okay to say that it's over for Spieth?
0: He's still so young, but he needs to get some sort of traction. Well, he, he's been irrelevant.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, he, It is it has it fallen apart in relationship to what he was. Did he win three majors? He won three out of five when he was like 23. Yeah. He I mean, he's won his first major when he was 22. Um, the one that hurts today, though, lefty. Phil Mickelson was two under through two and is currently third to last. Thanks, nine, nine over seventy nine for Phil Mickelson today, and uh, it was just all bad all day. Even the, the first two holes, he was in the deep rough. It just went straight crazy. Phil Mickelson, super deep rough saves, and then made the putts, and went birdie birdie. Followed that up by going bogey bogey, and I don't think he found a fairway all day long. And as we know at a U.S. Open, you simply can't do it. I mean, the rough is rough, as they say. <laughs> Uh, so anyhow, there you are. Yeah, Jordan Spieth, man, he is um as a young player, he had such swagger, and he had um he had what 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 was no, I don't think it was just uh 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 or anything, but he had great confidence. He also, we talked about this at one point, man. If you were 22 years old, 23 years old, you're winning majors. You have never, ever, ever been bad at golf. Right. <laughs> like n- n- Your whole life, you've never you learn learned this yes. from whatever young age it was, and you've only ever just done it, done it well. You've had a swing coach, you, you've executed, you obviously have tremendous talent and all that. Anybody who golfs for their life, they're going to play bad golf at some point. At least bad golf, in rel- you know, relative to them. And when guys experience that for the first time in their lives, who have uh, who have already been to elite levels, it is really, really. Uh, I think it's shaking. You know, and golf more than any other sport is a mental game, more than any other sport. And so. Th- I think that what you see here is a guy who had supreme confidence, but that confidence when shaken has not been able to be refound. And he's a real head case. I mean, when he's out on the course, he's constantly talking to himself, talking to his caddy, trying to find that good headspace. He doesn't just exist in it. And if you don't just exist in it, you're going to get knocked out of it. And, and I, I don't think Jordan Spieth has learned how to be abide in the moment as it were. And I, by the way, I'm the last person who should be preaching about this, okay, because I don't know what the moment even smells like when you talk about a good headspace for golf. But uh, I see guys that, that go out there and appear just to be, you know, Brooks Kafka, just out there doing it, you know. And whether he plays good, whether he plays bad, seems virtually unaffected. You know, and I love the guys who are affected because I feel like I relate more to those guys, the guys who are more emotional about it, more excited about it. But guess what? It ain't good for your golf game to be that. And that's what Jordan Spieth is. And I think he's in real trouble. I mean, David Duvall, right? He was right there. All of a sudden fell. and That was it. He's so young and he's still so very talented. I mean, his short game, his putting when it's right is unapproachable. Even by professional standards, but that's that's not his his problem. Ain't the game, man. His problem is himself. Well, his problem
0: is his streakiness as well, which also comes down to being mental. I've never seen Jordan Spieth play okay. <laughs> right. You know, he seriously right. though he makes eight birdies in a row, yeah. or he shoots seventy four like he did today. Yeah, it's really tough to if you're a guy like him. I think to to build the foundation of confidence. You need to be finishing top 20 in majors consistently, not winning or missing the cut. That's Mm -hmm. that's too tough to be able to go through those swings. I also think that there's a real phenomenon in the PGA in this life after Tiger Woods era where... And and the NBA had a similar phenomenon post-Michael Jordan, right? Where every guy that we, the media, we, the general public, tried to anoint as the next Jordan would show flashes and then crumble with the exception of one guy, Kobe Bryant, but that's because he maniacally pursued that goal on his own without even being anointed. And still, you don't want to say came up short, but it was definitely an interesting analysis when it was all said and done. But in this post-Tiger, think about how many guys have tasted it at an age where before Tiger, we would have considered that unprecedented. Mm -hmm. You don't win majors in golf before the age of 25. Yet then after Tiger... Prove that you could, then
2: a lot of guys Rory did McElroy it. Rory yeah. McIlroy does it. Yeah. Jordan yeah. does it. Yeah,
0: I know Justin Johnson was in his late twenties when he got his first one, but still, he was a, a rising star. Jason uh, uh, Jason Scott, Jason Day, Jason Day. Excuse me. Yep. got was one. Adam Scott. Early, Adam Scott. Mm-hmm. Adam Scott was a little bit more more normal age for first major, late twenties, early thirties. But e- either way, but some of those guys, particularly Rory McIlroy, Justin Spieth, or Jordan Rory McElroy, uh Jordan Spieth. Those two guys particularly, I think they got eaten alive by the hype
1: machine Mm. and the expectations. The other thing, too, basically, the more you work, the harder you try, the harder you practice, the more you prepare in every other sport, the better you're going to be. And the guys who just make it what their life is about invariably rise to the top. You can go hit one million golf balls every single day. And I'll give you a great example. Who, who was speaking? I, it may have been Justin Thomas. He was talking about Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald loves the game of golf. Took up the game of golf some number of years ago and loves it. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I am so unbelievably impressed by the work ethic of Larry Fitzgerald and his actual true dedication to the game of golf, like it is, he he's taken his, what he does in football and he's dedicated to golf. And his comment was this, I guarantee you, in his life, he has hit more golf balls on the driving range than I have. <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. And I thought, my goodness, like think about that. Like, like Larry Fitzgerald has spent more time working on his golf game than... And this guy over here, now it is... I understand there's a difference when you learn when you're young and you learn the proper way to do things from, from an early age and so forth and so on. But it isn't just, hey, man, you need to stay... You know, out of the clubs, you need to pay more attention to, you know, your professional life, your golf game. It's not for lack of effort. It's not that you're not out there practicing the way you need to do. In fact, in some cases, you're practicing too much in golf. And that's why golf is such a weird game. It's like, bro, you need to go take go to the islands for a couple of days and come back. Get your head right, you know? And Jordan, uh, Jordan Spieth, he, he's no, I'm sure he's tried everything, right? Paper clips in the pocket, hat on sideways, wallet in the you know, in the in the other side of the the car. I don't know, whatever. But it it, it's none of it is working for him right now. I mean there's only been one maniac ever in the history of golf that
0: has gone golfing 10 hours a day every day for his whole life changed his swing multiple times changed his swing coach multiple times changed his entire approach multiple times and still been elite that's tiger woods but tiger also woods is completely different than it's not but
1: it, it's not because of his work ethic it's because of his head like it's because of his mental steeliness and that obviously drives him in terms of his work ethic, but that's the reason he's able. Plenty of guys have gone and redone and retooled their swings, and come back and can't do it. Right? Tiger came back in one majors. That's what I'm saying. But it's <laughs> not because it's not because of the quote unquote work ethic. One thing, just as it pertains to this conversation within the context of just today. Okay, Jordan Spieth three over seventy three. You know who else? Dustin Johnson. Tiger Woods. Mm. Justin Rose, Dustin Johnson. I mean, you're talking about Dustin Johnson just won the tour championship. Well, yeah, now he's gonna be chilling because that's what he does. It drives me nuts. You're, you you know, you're such you're such an assumptive person on this stuff. Sometimes all I'm saying is guys who are playing their best golf right now: Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, guys who are elite major players to obviously tiger woods jordan spieth can't figure it out guess what they all they're all three over they're all three over 73 it's 2 tell new one 1029 espn radio quick break on the other side mike ag grizz greats the new grizz greats podcast is out the yes. silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions he is our guest on that we'll hear from him right after this <laughs>
2: Change is constant, and nowhere is this more true than with your company's network and network security. With an SD-WAN solution from Blackfoot Communications, you get the best of both worlds. A scalable network to quickly connect remote offices, and the protection from downtime that ensures your network is always on. For more information, visit blackfootbusiness.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. If you do it
1: again, I'm going to freak out. If you do it again, I'm going to freak out. If you do it again, I'm going to freak out. So do again. Eastern Conference Finals Game 2 has begun. Three minutes left in the first quarter. ESPN Television, the Boston Celtics down 0-1 in the series, up 23-21 in the game. Two-point lead here, first quarter, very early stages. We'll keep you apprised of that as we go. Uh, Coulter, it is time for our uh, next installment, newest installment of Grizz Greats, the 1995, silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions. And we are very happy uh, this week to have Mike Agee. He was a guard For the uh, Montana Grizzly team, a junior that season, but a four year starter out of Kalispell Flathead, an outstanding player. Give us his bio here in just a moment, but want to mention also. Grizz Greats, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can go check out Grizz Greats, uh, the uh, silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. Listen, this will be the fourth episode out uh, that is out right now, so you can go listen to those anytime you would like to. And they are brought to us in part by Blackfoot Communications and then also by First Security Bank. And in 1993, when the Grizz football team was trying to host its first playoff game, former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher Spearheaded a group of local business owners who guaranteed the bid for UM Athletics. That commitment from First Security Bank to UM Athletics has never wavered. Two years later, 1995, the University of Montana turned that local optimism into national prominence when the Grizzlies won the Division I AA National Championship. And 25 years later, that's now, First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic season first security bank a proud supporter of grizz athletics and the university of montana so we're very excited to have mike agey on this episode and really fun to talk to i thought a very uh not quiet isn't the right word but sort of a calm and cerebral sort of uh, a conversation that we had and i also thought some 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 really great memories and great stories about what he's been up to since then too
0: no doubt. Mike Agee was a phenomenal athlete. I mean, yeah. He was a great, great athlete in an offensive lineman. Multiple foot- offers, right? Various yep. sports. Six foot four and a half, two hundred eighty-five 285 pounds. He was a state champion in the discus at Flathead High School up in Kalispell, uh, as well as an all-state selection in wrestling and a three-time all-state selection in football before he came to the University of Montana. But like you mentioned, a rare four-year starter. He had started 29 consecutive games by the time his junior year had ended. It's amazing, and then went on to become a first-team All-American for the second year in a row as a senior in 1996. But this is from Mick Denny, former Montana offensive line coach and offensive coordinator in '95, and then the head coach in 1996. Right, he said. He runs so well that he really gets down the field, which helps our screen packages, which are so essential to our offense. His pass protection ability is his greatest asset. He's an extremely dependable player who's played with injuries, which shows his mental toughness. And he's absolutely our best athlete on the offensive line. We think of guards as the guys who are plowing the the lanes. Right. This Grizz team hardly ran the ball. They needed guys who could get out and run. And that's, I mean, they used guys like Matt Wells, a receiver it, by title. As an extension of the run game, throwing the ball in the flat. Well, how do you get him upfield then when Matt Wells is, you know, 5'7", 165 pounds? Well, you get the big guy up front running out in front of him. Yeah. Way ahead of their time in this, but Mike Agee was absolutely a catalyst, a first-team All-American
1: two years in a row for Montana, one of the great offensive linemen in school history. Well, enjoy this newest installment and a little snippet from our conversation with Mike Agee. Let's take you back to uh, playing high school. You're up there in Kalispell, and it seems like at this time, I know this is a topic that Coulter always likes to talk about because the state of Montana at one time delivered really high-end and lots of offensive linemen, it seemed like, out of the high school ranks that were Division One caliber, Montana, Montana State type of players, and maybe even uh, more than that. You were one of those. What do you remember about that time? Because there was, there was a prolific number of, of big guys that were playing football and were going on to big things at the next level too, right?
3: Yeah, that's right um it was it was competitive there were a bunch of really pretty talented big guys at at that time
0: you yourself multiple sport athlete at flathead high school how much do you think that just influenced and contributed to to your rise being able to play division one football how much you think wrestling and, and throwing the discus and tracking and doing all those other things helped just accelerate your athletic development
3: Oh, I absolutely think, uh, especially track, um, even, you know, I was a thrower, and just coordination, wrestling, mental toughness. I don't, you know, I definitely think as many sports as, as you could play really helped get re- get me ready for that next level at, at the collegiate level. And, uh, I, boy, I sure don't regret any of that. And, in fact, wished I'd have wrestled just a little bit more. I only wrestled three years, and I, I picked it up kind of late. And that was, I think wrestling was probably the thing that, and especially as an offensive lineman, balance and strength and just being able to control your body and try to control another person's, you know, momentum and their body. That was a huge, huge asset as far as, you know, being, getting me ready for that next level.
0: Now your senior year, state champion in the discus, 175 feet, five inches was the winning throw that's pretty damn good. Did you get any looks for track? Because that's a that's a throw that could get you some Division One looks at, uh, at the track and field level and co- at, at the college level.
3: Actually, uh, I did. I did get quite a few looks. Um, pac Ten schools are interested. I think overall, I had more offers uh, to, to have a scholarship to compete in track than I did for football. Um, some things that were surprising to me. I remember, you know, I didn't even know where Clemson was. <laughs> Clemson was hot to have me come throw. Yeah. I mean, I'm South Carolina, right? I have no idea at that time that, you know, Clemson even exists. I knew they were a good football program, but they were after me to come throw disc for them. And, uh, you know, it just made, I had already had my heart set to go play at the university of Montana from I mean, you know, that's what I wanted to do, but it was surprising, I think, in the end, the number of schools that were pursuing me for, for a track scholarship.
0: It's fascinating thing about recruiting way back then because, uh, you know, Shannon Schwinn, she, formerly Shannon Kitt, she told us a story when she was getting recruited. She was getting recruited by a ton of schools, but she said... She had full knowledge of what Notre Dame and Stanford were, but she got an offer from Vanderbilt. She said she remembers driving down to the library in Billings and saying, where the heck's Vanderbilt? I'd never heard of this Vanderbilt before.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so a little yeah. story
0: with you with you and Clemson. What was what yeah. was Flathead High like back in, back uh, 25 years ago, or I guess probably more around 30 years ago? Because I no glacier yet right. at just a single high school. So what no. do you remember just about your days as a Brave?
3: You know, I remember pretty well, it was a big school. There were a lot of students, uh, and I remember athletics was really competitive. Um, the class in front of me, I graduated in 92, but that 91 class was really talented. Um, they had a guy named Mark Gilman in that class, a bunch of other guys that went on and played college sports. Um, you know, being an athlete at flat high school was, it was kind of a big deal. And uh, like I said, it was really competitive and, uh, my memories aren't you know super fond. i didn't really love my high school experience we i don't know we didn't we didn't excel we didn't win a lot of games god bless (laughs) uh, you mike you're amongst friends here okay (laughs) (laughs) we
1: we can commiserate all the three of us together all right
3: yeah but uh you know for as many kids we had we should have been pretty awesome and we were just middle mediocre
1: well, so I'm interested, though, because, you know, you said, you know, kind of in the end, man, I had some offers to do multiple different sports, multiple different schools. But you said I had my heart set that I wanted to play at the University of Montana. So wh- where did that come from? What was what was going on in terms of your family or, your, you know, your time there in Kalispell, where it was like, all right, if I can go be a grizzly, play football there, that's what I want to do.
3: Uh, I remember really well the day I decided I wanted to be a Grizz. And um, we had played, let's see, I was a sophomore in high school. We'd come down to play a JV game against Sentinel, and it was a morning game on a Saturday. And we got done with our our game, and I think the Grizzlies kicked off at 1. And, you know, those were the days, grass end zones, that would have been, like, what, 1990 maybe? Yeah. 91. And, uh, you know, the, the stadium was small. It wasn't packed. And there was a spot for us to sit. Our whole team, our JV team, was taken over. From, we went from Sentinels Fields over to Washington Grizz, and the whole, our whole JV team was seated kind of where the students sit now, up in that corner above them. And uh, we watched Gary Bennett and that team just destroy Weber State. And, they, you know, the, the, the receivers are running all around where they're scoring touchdowns, the cannons going off. And I'm like, man, I want a part of this, this atmosphere, even though it was nothing close to what it is now. I mean, those guys were winning, and it was just a fun game to watch, and I wanted a part of that then. And I remember that was that was the day I was like, I want to be a Chris. It's
1: pretty good, man. Mike Agee offensive guard for the grizzly national championship team in 1995 remembers the day that he wanted to be a grizzly he came down to Washington grizzly stadium as a as a high schooler how many of those moments man for for grizzly players over the years where they go oh yeah i know when i walked into that stadium that day and the, the come out the tunnel and the, the crowd doing what they're doing is like man that's that's seed planting stuff right there, man. And so uh, cool to hear from him, hear that whole conversation again right now. It's available, Grizzgrates.com. You can go listen to it right there on the player. It's also available on Transistor, Spotify. You can check out Grizz Grates the 1995 uh, National Championship Podcast Series that we got episode four with Mike Agee.
0: I think that perhaps uh, the most, I don't want to say incorrect, one of most skewed narratives in, in sports is that winning is the number one factor in recruiting and, more importantly, galvanizing fan bases and growing attendance. It's not winning. It's the hope of winning. That's why this team is so important to the city of Missoula and the University of Montana. Mm. You could argue the Grizz have never been better than they were 25 years ago. Never. Not one team was actually better Mm. than 25 years ago. But Grizz Nation has believed that they could be at least as good for 25 years. The stadium has grown exponentially. When Mike Agee was coming on visits here, he was going to games with 12,000 people. There's more than twice that many. There's more than twice that many people when the Grizz are missing the playoffs. And that's what the hope of winning does for you. That's what I hope people get from this podcast is how... These guys laid the foundation for the elite expectations and the elite fervor amongst people in the state of Montana for Grizz football. They're the ones that created this.
1: The uh, Grizz Greats Silver Anniversary of the 1995 National Champions Podcast Series is brought to us in part by First Security Bank. It's also brought to us by Blackfoot Communications. And when the Grizz won, this was a fever
0: pitch. I mean, this was when Montana really just went all the way in yeah. on the University of Montana football team. And I'm sure... People from around the state lighting up the phone lines, calling each other on the landlines. Right. You know, Back when you got the touch tone in the message machine, you're leaving them on the recorded. But chances are, if you're using phone services way back then, 25 years ago, those services provided by Blackfoot Communications. 25 years later, Blackfoot continues to keep our homes and businesses connected with state-of-the-art voice and Internet services. Blackfoot takes great pride in celebrating the indelible mark left by Montana's run to its first football national championship in 1995. And Blackfoot is excited to present Grizz Great's the Silver Anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series reliving that epic campaign. Blackfoot, a proud supporter of University of Montana Athletics.
1: Eastern Conference Finals, Game 2. Boston Celtics make themselves a very slight lead now that uh, we're in the about three, four minutes in here to the second quarter. The Celtics up 40 33 over the Miami Heat. to Tell 1029 ESPN Radio, SWX Montana Television. Great to be with you across the state of Montana on the TV. You can also check us out on the World Wide Web. You can also listen to the podcast. Listen to the 2 Tell and Nuwana's podcast anywhere, anytime. Just download, rate, review, and subscribe. You subscribe, it just comes to you. It's that simple. The 2 Tell podcast is available thanks to our friends at Blackfoot Communications. And, again, uh, the new Grizz Greats silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions podcast, Episode 4 with Mike Ag. out right now. GrizzGreats.com for that. GrizzGreats.com uh, for that. Coulter, Eastern Conference Finals, Game 2. You and I both think that this is going to be a relatively long series, six games at the minimum, right? Oh, I think this is seven. Okay. I would was so, guarantee it. Seven, you can say seven. That's fine. Six, seven games. Uh, how important, though, within the context of that, is this game for the Celtics to win it? Oh, it's huge because the Heat are the
0: hottest team in the league. I mean, the Heat are 9-1 and one in the playoffs right now. It's crazy the heat the only game they lost is a must have it we're out if we don't win it game by the bucks but they pulled one out but other than that heat have been rolling yeah and they've won in dominant fashion they've won in close fashion they've won in every possible way I mean they've won with 0.00 seconds left at the free throw line they've won on a crazy block in overtime they've won all sorts of different ways and when I mean the heat have multiple different mental factors here first of all, there's a lot of dudes in the league that have uh, elevated sense of confidence. I, I think that Jimmy Butler is the king of r- irrational confidence. I'm not saying Jimmy Butler doesn't deserve to be confident, but Jimmy Butler, not only does he think he's the best player in the league, but he's tough enough and strong enough to absolutely back it up against the other best players in the league.
1: Well, that means you're pretty much the best player in the league.
0: <laughs> I'm not ready to go quite there yet, but I also think that they have a bunch of dudes who just straight up don't know any better. I mean, Tyler Hero's 20 years old. Yeah, Bam Adebayo has been in the league for like two seconds. So, I, but the Celtics have a similar element as well. So, I, I think it's a great matchup, a great series. But this is absolutely a must-win for Boston tonight because they cannot let the Heat continue to carry and push their momentum. They got to break the chain.
1: Well, the other thing too, and and he is to me getting a little bit overlooked in all this, and that's Gordon Dragic. I mean, I think he has been uh, a phenomenal. Uh, he's been playing phenomenally well. I mean, this is a guy who was an all-pro caliber player a couple years ago yep. uh, when he was in in Phoenix, and has sort of reascended at least to me in these playoffs to that sort of level no of, he's of play. 20, he's averaging twenty-two points per game in the playoffs, and and forty percent from three. A team that doesn't have a a traditional, you know, obvious number one point guard, Dragic has been the primary ball handler in this team as well, and so what he has, you know. Facilitated, created his passing ability, his scoring ability. I mean, he has really done it all and set up this team for great success on the offensive end. And there, they are. There, they are. There's a lot of ways to be good defensively. We always talk about effort, and you can't—you got to have that. There is a reality to the physicalness of defense where if you have the length and athleticism to be a good defender, you uh, t- this is why I always say, I think Steph Curry is one of the most underrated defenders in the NBA because he's got no chance to actually defend given his stature, and yet his anticipation is so good, his quickness is so good that he actually makes a go of it. But he's never going to be a, a defensive player of the year, and he physically has no chance to be that. There's a lot of guys, though, who can be and should be really great defenders because of the length and the problems that they present. But the other way you can be great defensively, particularly as a team, is just straight toughness. Yeah. And that's what the Miami Heat are. They, are they, they have great effort, yes, but they also they enforce their will on you and i'm i'm so impressed with them on that anyway 707 left here in the second quarter of the game boston up 45 37 they had for a moment a 10 point lead 43 33 he scored a couple back but jason tatum uh just laying it back or excuse me Andis Cantor getting the and one so he will step to the line uh for a uh for a, a possible old school three try and make it an eight point lead seven minutes to go in the half
0: I'm looking at the Heat roster right now. Bam Adebayo has to be the best bargain in the league.
1: They're paid him $3.4 million. Dude, I'd go block Tatum if you paid me $3.4 million. <laughs> I mean, he's... I'll do it. He's an all-star this year, man. That is a hell of a deal in this NBA, no doubt. I mean, to put that in perspective, Jay Crowder's making almost twice as much money as Bam. That's crazy. Enjoy Eastern Conference Finals Game 2. Enjoy Eastern Conference Semis Game 6 in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And Browns...